Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is very special, somebody that I've known for quite amount of time now, actually, after my undergraduate years. Her name is Dr. Katherine Schmitz, and she is a renowned figure in the world of exercise oncology. Now, I first came to know Dr. Schmitz when she offered me an intern job, an intern position in her research lab at the University of Pennsylvania. After my undergraduate years, I was struggling to get into medical school, and I wasn't sure what route to take. And so I entertained the possibility of learning exercise physiology. And through her, I was able to learn more than than just that. You know, I got to delve into the world of breast cancer survivors and different treatments and how exercise can have a profound impact on their survivorship. So Dr. Schmitz's academic journey, she earned a PhD in kinesiology and exercise science from the University of Minnesota. But after UPenn, she came over to Hershey, which is where I am doing my PM&R residency. And so I've been plugged into her lab as I'm completing my residency training right now. So as fate has it, I've been following her. But unfortunately, or fortunately for her, she has now even moved over to Western Pennsylvania, over to the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. She currently leads the Moving Through Cancer program at UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, and she is the professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at UPMC. Her research at this time includes studying technology-based supportive care treatments that include physical activity to improve outcomes among people with advanced cancer. She has been the past president of the American College of Sports Medicine, and she was the moving force behind two ACSM development processes for exercise and cancer guideline for patients. Given all that, Dr. Katherine Schmitz has done tremendous work, amazing, remarkable contributions to the field of exercise oncology. And as you guys may know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we thought it was super fitting to start this month's episode with Dr. Katherine Schmitz as our renowned guest. And breast cancer is something that almost a lot of people have just been touched by, including me. Breast cancer is very close to my heart. And so I'm just very excited to get this episode out into the hands of you all so that you can share it with those that you know, not even just with breast cancer, but any type of cancer and how exercise can profoundly impact their survivorship. All right, here's Catherine Schmitz. All right, Dr. Catherine Schmitz, welcome to the Medicine Redefined Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Great to talk to you. Likewise, and it's truly an honor to have you on here. So for the listeners, they probably don't know, but I've known you now since 2014, probably, right? So I was in my gap years of medical or gap years before medical school, and I had a tough time getting into medical school, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. And exercise physiology was always a passion of mine. And you graciously, I remember the phone call and you you allowed me to work in your lab, right, under Katie Sturgeon. Um, and that really introduced me to the world of cancer rehab and exercise oncology. And so I had a great time really learning through your guidance. Um, and then when I matched for residency to Penn State, I kind of just followed you there. And then I was part of the Wiser Project again. So it's kind of just all coming full circle. So honestly, it's great to have you here. 
um, through through all of that. Yeah, that was really quite the um, the the breeding ground that uh, that project that was part of a, a center grant called Transdisciplinary Research on Energetics and Cancer, and um, there were so many um, bright young minds that uh, came into the lab and worked on Wiser Survivor, which was the project you worked on, uh, who have gone on to be you know, professors in a variety of different uh, academic institutions and, uh, you know, and to great success. And I just, I think there was something really magical happening when you came into the lab. So um, it was great to have you there. Um, the other backstory is that, you know, uh, when you do that kind of trial, you never have enough funding. And so the whole trial rests on the back of interns who choose to come into the lab who are bright and eager and interested. And we could never have gotten the study done without you and about four other interns. There was no way we were gonna get that study, that huge study done without your help. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a lot of this talk is gonna be about exercise oncology and cancer in general, and kind of how exercise can really guide caregivers, as well as the individuals who have been diagnosed with cancer. Now, I was recently listening to a podcast, um, Peter Atia may know, and he uh, had just had a cancer episode come out and talks about how almost everyone in the world has been touched by cancer, right? Whether they have been personally diagnosed or whether they know somebody else who has been diagnosed. And with that comes a lot of emotion, whether it's grief, despair, death, but also sometimes joy and grit, right? Especially when people can get to the other side um, and, and, and build that strength. I know you have a personal experience being a caregiver. You know, I read your book and your wife, Sarah, was diagnosed with cancer. Take me through a little bit about that journey for you and the emotions that you felt, especially as somebody who works in the field, but then also just had somebody close to you be diagnosed with it. Yeah, so I, I'll tell you first, um, I'll tell you the, the end of the story first, and that is that um, Sarah's cancer journey changed my work forever. I changed how I approach exercise oncology research forever. Um, because before Sarah's diagnosis, I looked at it as, you know, another disease to be studied. And, um, you know, I was applying physiology principles and saying, this is what cancer patients should be doing. And, um, and then, um, you know, and I, and I it was well published and, and, you know, had published guidelines uh, for exercise and cancer. And, uh, and then Sarah was diagnosed and, um, and I got to experience firsthand that, that sort of deer in headlights moment of, oh, what, you know, and her initial diagnosis was, we had a misunderstanding. Um, my mother had had a skin cancer that was a squamous cell carcinoma on her nose. And um, Sarah's cancer was a squamous cell carcinoma in her nose. And I made the assumption that it was something fairly benign, that they were going to, you know, scrape her nose and, you know, it would all be well. And... So the moment that was the big like deer in headlights moment for us was um, when they uh, held a multidisciplinary conference um, that included the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist, the surgeon, the nurse navigator, you know, supportive care. I mean, I'm not sure who else was in the room, but it, there were a lot of people in that room. And, you know, they start talking and they're speaking really seriously. 
And, and, you know, and, and Sarah and I are both like, I don't get it. Why this seal, it felt like overkill for what we thought was a simple skin cancer. And it was, it was when the penny dropped, if you will, when we realized, whoa, this is not what my mother had. This is, this is something very different. And, um, and, you know, we went into, you know, what I, what I like to call the deer in headlights phase, which, you know, we, we just kind of were, uh, like, oh, okay, when's the next appointment? What am I doing? Tell me what to do. I mean, it's interesting how very quickly that, you know, my, my general sense in interacting with the healthcare and, uh, world is that I want to be partner with the clinicians that I'm talking to. And, but when it is a serious cancer diagnosis, it is remarkable how quickly you just become a child. You just become, you know, just, uh, what do you need me to do? Where, to, tell me where to be. I trust you. My life is in your hands, you know? And, um, and that's kind of what we went into for, um, you know, all the way through her first surgery, which was a major surgery. She had a complete rhinectomy. They removed her entire nose. They did a forehead flap in order to create a new nose. And, um, and that was the introduction that we had to the difference between the lived experience of cancer and what the clinicians were telling us would be the experience of cancer. And nobody did anything wrong, but boy, howdy, did we have a very different experience than what we heard them say would happen. Um, you know, we thought she'd be in the hospital for a night or two. She was there five nights. We thought the wound care would be simple. It was extremely complex. So that was just the beginning of the whole journey of, of complexity and sort of peeling the onion. It was finally actually um, well into the journey when Sarah had started combined chemotherapy and radiation, which is just deadly. I mean, chemotherapy is hard. Um, radiation is hard. Combine them, and that's just so hard. And, you know, it was several weeks into her doing that when she said, God, I'm just so tired. And I remember that's when it clicked in, you know, for me that I went, wait a minute, I know something about this. <laughs> I can help. I can do something for you, you know? And, um, and I, and I felt really like, what is wrong with me that I didn't think of this weeks ago? Why didn't, you know, but it, it really is, you know, when you are faced with a life-threatening diagnosis like that, um, your ability to process and, um, and, and use your expertise is, is just called into question. So, um, so yeah, so I, I got her onto the, onto a program of walking. She was supposed to do 30 minutes of walking every day, uh, because that, that's the recommendation. And, um, you know, I don't know if you bleep things out, but I became, you know, that bitch that made me walk every day. Um, and, but she managed to get through um, chemo and radiation without any dose delays or dose reductions, um, which is extremely important for her long-term survival. And only about 30% of head and neck cancer patients managed to do that. So I think that the fact that she exercised um, as much as she did during her, um, you know, combined chemo radiation therapy um, is one of the reasons why Sarah is still, you know, no evidence of disease seven years later. So That's awesome. it was, it was quite, quite the journey. I gotta say. Yeah. It sounds like it. Dr. Schmitz, what, 
at what stage of your career were you in at the time? I mean, so you, you've got a background in kinesiology and economics mm-hmm. and epidemiology. Were you doing cancer research at this time or was. this is, this was. was kind of the inception you were? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was like, you know, in, in sort of the extra, um, complicated, um, category, um, Sarah was still living in, in Philadelphia. I had just left the University of Pennsylvania and taken a position at Penn State. And so I was living and working 90 minutes away from Sarah um, at the time that she was going through her cancer. And so I spent a lot of quality time on the Pennsylvania Turnpike um, and um, going, going back and forth, making sure that she was, you know, that she was okay. Um, but I was, I was very senior. I mean, I was very much in the middle of doing cancer research and had been doing cancer research at that point for 15 years. What was it about the field specifically that enticed you to dive deep in, do some more research, right? You mentioned that that changed your life entirely. I mean, there's always a spark, right? If that, if the spark of your loved one wasn't it, what was it before that? Yeah. So the initial spark to come into cancer actually came from a single paper. Um, and so when I was a postdoc, um, you know, I did my, my, uh, PhD training under a cardiologist, Art Leon and, um, at the university of Minnesota. And my dissertation was about exercise and heart disease and metabolic disease, obesity prevention. And, uh, that was the direction I was headed. I was really interested in metabolic disease and obesity prevention for the most part. And, um, what I noted as a postdoc was that I was kind of staring down the face of a field, you know, a, a career that would be very incremental, that the big, huge leaps forward, um, showing us that exercise was useful for diabetes or for heart disease had already, you know, those, those papers were already written. Um, that evidence base was already in place. Not that there isn't more work to be done in that area, but I was, uh, you know, invited by a, um, uh, faculty mentor uh, to consider looking at exercise and cancer. And I knew absolutely nothing about cancer. And, you know, I, you know, as a postdoc, you have a little time on your hands. And so I spent um, a number of weeks one summer um, reading the literature in exercise and cancer. And there was a single paper written by Ann McTiernan um, called, that was literally called A Call to Action. Um, and it was written to people with exactly my kind of training. And it said, Hey, you there working on exercise and cardiometabolic disease. We need you over here in cancer. Please consider working in this area. Your skills will be relevant here. So I actually, um, you know, was, uh, before the internet was much of a thing. Um, so I, I called her up and I said, I'm taking up your call to action. And she met me at a scientific conference and handed me a couple of example grants and said, here's some examples, go write some grants. And I never looked back. Wow. So I saw the opportunity with exercise and cancer in 2000 to be on the ground floor of a brand new field. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, you mentioned a call to action, right? And cancer is so prevalent in our world. But yet it seems like mm-hmm. it isn't talked about enough. I mean, to be honest, throughout our three years of our podcast coming up, this might be the first or second time we're actually delving deep into cancer and oncology. Yeah. yeah. Um, so even just finding people to talk about it, right? It's not necessarily mm-hmm. the sexiest topic. And maybe it's because, you know, throughout the last 20, 30 years, where have the treatments really been, right? Like as much as other fields are, 
you kind of see this rapid progression of treatment and things. So given that our audience is pretty new to understanding cancer, can you just talk about a little bit um, about this current state of cancer, where we are really, and what type of research you've been doing um, throughout your career uh, to that really highlights that? Sure, sure. So, um, so the first is to level set just so that people understand, um, because, you know, I think that there is, um, there are a variety of different myths and ideas that people have about cancer. Um, one is that it is completely genetic and inevitable, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's inaccurate. That's a myth. Um, the other is that it's a rare disease um, and that it, you know, it only happens uh, very occasionally. That's also a myth. Um, uh, the other thing is that, um, uh, that, that cancer is, uh, uh, something that you, you can't avoid, um, you know, that, that it's just simply going to happen to the people it's going to happen to. Um, that's kind of a corollary to the genetic ar argument, but it's just a little more colloquial. It's a little more, you know, sort of plain speak, if you will. Um, and, and that's, that's also false. And so. Um, so the first thing to say is that cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States. About 610,000 people die of cancer every year. 1.7 million people per year are diagnosed with cancer. There are over 18 million people in the United States who have had a diagnosis of cancer. It is expected that by the year 2040, there will be 25 million people living in the United States who have had a diagnosis of cancer. So it's about four to five percent of the U.S. population that has experienced cancer. In terms of how frequently it occurs, um, the most common um, uh, uh, statistics that I think are useful are one in two men and one in three women will be diagnosed with cancer sometime in their lifetime. So it is a relatively frequent occurrence. Um, those people won't all die of their disease. Um, uh, survival of cancer is uh, is outstanding for many of the common cancers, um, not lung cancer. People don't uh, survive lung cancer for a long time, typically, but breast and prostate cancer, um, and those are the two most common diagnoses. Um, survival is over 90%, uh, for, particularly for early stage uh, disease. So that's just kind of level setting. Um, the other thing is that there are a number of um, easily found resources that I think your listeners might be interested to go take a look at um, in order to understand the things that they can do in order to reduce their risk of cancer in a substantive way. Um, again, a lot of people believe it's just genetic or it's just, you know, it's just my family or it's just, you know, inevitable in some way um, or that it's all the environment. And in fact, about half of cancer diagnoses could be avoided if people held a uh, healthy weight, exercised on a regular basis and ate a healthy diet and stopped smoking. So those are four you know, health behaviors well within the control of, of your listeners that have a substantive effect on, uh, on their cancer risk. The fifth one that gets talked about very little and actually holds great sway in cancer risk is alcohol. So we know that alcohol consumption uh, is associated with increased risk for, uh, for cancer diagnosis. Um, so there are uh, between, uh, depending on the source you look at, between seven and 10 modifiable risk factors that you can um, uh, work towards shifting 
in order to uh, reduce your risk of, of cancer incidence, cancer recurrence, or death from cancer. Um, those are easily found uh, if you can go to the website for the American Institute for Cancer Research or the American Cancer Society. Both websites are very easily navigable um, and uh, would summarize all of the evidence base uh, for these modifiable risk factors for cancer. You mentioned a greater than 90% survival rate for breast and prostate. Why is that? Why are we so good in that regard? Is it uh, screening, earlier screening, early intervention? What is it about that where in some of the other tests, we don't have quite the diagnostics and the interventions to have a more success or a higher success rate? Yeah, it's, it's a combination of, of several things. One is um, we, um, we have excellent screening tests. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, inc- improved screening definitely is one of the reasons for the higher survival rate. We also have had um, terrific improvements in, um, in uh, uh, treatment success. Um, and so that's another, another reason. Um, the third is that because they are so, you know, one of the reasons why those two things exist is because those two ca- cancers are so common um, that a lot of the research that has been done uh, in cancer has been done on breast and prostate cancer. So, um, so you know, think about it. If you, if you study something a lot, you're going to get better at it. You're going to learn a whole lot more about it. Um, if you, on the other hand, you have a very rare cancer, like my wife's cancer, she had squamous cell carcinoma, uh, head and neck cancer, you know, there's hardly any research on that because it occurs so much less frequently. And so we know so much less, right? So it, it kind of all goes together. If a lot of people are being diagnosed with the disease, there's going to be more pressure to understand that issue better. And, and, they, and we make more forward progress as a result. Gotcha. So I want to start shifting into kind of your area of expertise, right? You mentioned early on, you identified the role of exercise, right? That call to action. I think it was, you mentioned, and McTurnan, the paper, McTernan. right? So mm-hmm. we'll definitely look for that one. The the one that puts you on the path to, to be able to do all the amazing things you're doing now. But offline, we were talking about, well, I was talking about my bias, right? I think Darsh and I recently had a conversation. We were just talking about, you know, evaluating research and the flaws of research and I think, you know, ultimately what we came to is both of us love exercise. So anytime a paper comes out or somebody puts an article out, says exercise is good for fill in the blank, right? Mm -hmm. We are just likely to jump on it because I mean, that's something that we love to do. And so at the risk of going down that path the way, I'd like to kind of get from you, your take on the different types of cancer. You highlighted a couple of them with respect to exercise and the state of the evidence where is the evidence the strongest? Are there specific types of cancer, like solid tumors, liquid tumors, et cetera, some of the ones that you mentioned? Um, is it every cancer? What do we know with respect to the totality of the evidence? Okay. All right. Ooh, this is a fun one. Okay. Um, so uh, so the, the preponderance of the evidence in exercise oncology is in breast cancer. Um, so about 80% of the studies that have been done on exercise oncology have been done with patients who have had a diagnosis of breast cancer. Um, that said, in the 20% on the other cancers, um, it's very confirmatory. So, um, and there is absolutely no reason to believe that what we find in breast cancer and in the more common cancers where we do have the evidence that it would be different um, for the other cancers. One of the things that is frustrating in working in cancer is that 
the truth is that what exercise is actually really good at um, has more to do with the treatments than it does to do with the cancer. And so um, exercise does an outstanding job of helping people to withstand cytotoxic chemotherapy. And cytotoxic chemotherapy is used for most solid tumors. And so there is no reason to believe that what we see in breast cancer with benefits when people are going through cytotoxic chemotherapy would be any different because it's the same treatment on the same human body, right? So what we're actually doing with exercise during cancer treatment, after cancer treatment, with recovery from cancer treatment, again, has way more to do with the treatments and the toxicity of the treatments than to do with the cancer itself. We're, you know, the cancer is usually gone by the time we're intervening. There's a surgery and then there's adjuvant treatments, right? And the adjuvant treatments, though you have surgery, the cancer's gone. You know, there might be a few cells left somewhere in the body, right? And then you have cytotoxic chemotherapy. Exercise is not affecting the cancer. Exercise is affecting the person's ability to withstand cytotoxic chemotherapy. Same thing with radiation therapy, okay? So it has way more to do with the treatment. Um, unfortunately, the way that cancer research is envisioned by researchers um, and by clinicians is by disease type. And so it's a frustration for people who work in exercise oncology because we would like to just talk about what does exercise do for people undergoing cytotoxic chemotherapy? What does exercise do for somebody undergoing radiation therapy? But that's not the way, that's not the way that the clinical world um, organizes things, right? Does that make sense? So, um, so what do we know? What we know is that exercise has positive effects on physical function during and after cancer treatment. We know that exercise has a potent effect on cancer-related fatigue, which is the number one complaint that people have as they're going through their cancer treatment and for many people long after their cancer treatment is over. We know that exercise has a substantive effect on quality of life on ability to um, withstand any anxiety and depression that occurs as people go through their treatment. Um, and we know that exercise is safe uh, uh, and likely effective for uh, uh, women with and at risk for breast cancer-related lymphedema. We also know that exercise has a potent effect on sleep health, and we believe that exercise has an effect on bone health as well. So. Those things have been really um, reviewed and reviewed and reviewed. There are many systematic reviews on this. There are a variety of different disease types that have been included in these reviews. There are you know, five plus randomized controlled trials for each of those topics that would you know, conclude that there is a significant effect of exercise on these outcomes. But there are a laundry list of outcomes that we don't have enough evidence for. And some of them are extremely important clinically. One of them is um, cardiotoxicity. So we know that cytotoxic chemotherapies and other, other treatments used for cancer can be very toxic to the heart. We know that radiation, if it is to the, the, um, the center of the chest, um, can be quite damaging to the heart. Um, so we don't actually have um, conclusive evidence. We have um, um, 
some finger pointing, you know, there's some evidence, but we are not ready to, um, you know, put our flag, plant our flag to say that we have an effect on preventing or treating cardiotoxicity. Another one that is extremely important, that is the subject of work that I have ongoing right now, and in fact, a lot of people have ongoing right now, is um, chemotoxicity or chemotherapy tolerance. This is huge. This would be an enormous, enormous reason why uh, cancer centers should be doing uh, exercise as standard of care. If we believe that exercise could help patients to withstand chemotherapy and you know, to, to receive a higher dose of chemotherapy um, without toxicities, then exercise would easily become standard of care. But we don't actually have the evidence. There are two studies that have been done that have shown an effect of exercise interestingly, resistance exercise in particular, surprisingly, um, in breast cancer, um, one from the Netherlands, one from Canada, both of them showed that in relatively young women with breast cancer, that doing resistance training and doing a supervised training program during cancer treatment uh, resulted in improved relative dose intensity, which is a, a very precise measure of chemotherapy uh, tolerance. And um, that's great, but um, you know we need to replicate that and do that in other other um, uh, disease groups as well. So I've been part of a team that's been looking into this for colon cancer. I'm not at liberty to give you the results because we haven't published them yet. Um, I have an ongoing trial that is looking at this issue in older breast cancer patients um, called Thrive 65. In fact, the National Cancer Institute has funded a very large um, initiative called NICDO that is uh, intended to test exercise and nutrition interventions for cancer treatment outcomes. And uh, there are four groups. I happen to lead one of them um, that focuses on older breast cancer patients, but there's another group that focuses on rectal cancer, one on colon cancer, and one on ovarian cancer. And all of us are doing exercise and nutrition interventions in order to see whether or not we can improve chemotherapy tolerance. So there are areas where um, there is uh, uh, there are big questions, and you know there have been studies. I've just recently published a study that says you know, we may not have an effect on chemotherapy tolerance. There is there are questions, um, but but you've raised. You've raised an outstanding point, and that is that there is a publication bias. Um, everybody believes that exercise is good for you. And so it's very difficult to get a paper published that says, actually, you shouldn't be doing exercise at this particular time, or actually, it doesn't actually make a difference. It's very difficult to publish negative papers. So I think that that is a key issue, particularly in a setting of a disease where there's so much about hope and there's so much about, you know, that grit that you talked about. And people have this kind of, there's a, a, a worldview around cancer that, that is very friendly to this idea of, yes, but if you would just, you know, pick up those weights, you know, if you would just, you know, believe, you know, you know, clap your hands somehow, you know, there was just something you could do that it would make a difference, you know, and, I think that there's um, there's a real danger in that, and I think we have to guard against it. And I think we need to be really rigorous in our science 
And I think we need to publish the papers that say, you know, maybe exercise isn't really going to help with this particular thing. Yeah, thank you for that. I think, you know, just kind of in a nutshell, earlier you were talking about how it just makes the individual more resilient so they can withstand everything that's going to come after the cancer has been removed, right? Chemo, radiation. And again, all of us have been touched in, in some sense with our family members. So so we've seen that on that end where you're just so incredibly hopeless and you want to do everything you can. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering though, you mentioned a couple of modifiable risk factors, right? So your your weight, your your just movement, exercise, and and um, your your diet, quality, alcohol, things of that nature. Do we know that you know once individuals do get cancers, their pre-cancer level of fitness does that have any effect in terms of outcomes? So said another way, like once everybody gets once you know somebody gets cancer, if they are more physically fit, are they more likely to be successful in terms of being cancer free? Yeah, so um, uh, there is a, um, uh, an epidemiologist um, and clinical trialist in Alberta, Canada, by the name of Christine Friedenreich, um, and she uh, does these massive systematic reviews, and um, she, she updates them every few years, and um, she has actually looked very specifically at whether pre-exercise, pre-diagnosis exercise has an effect on survival or post-diagnosis exercise has an effect on survival? And the answer is yes. So um, so it does look like exercise across the entire lifespan, um, extremely difficult work to do, most of it epidemiologic observational, um, but it does appear that um, pre-exercise um, levels of physical activity and fitness uh, make a difference in the outcomes for survival and and you know and the the length of survival um, and that um, that doesn't mean however that it doesn't make a difference like like you know oh well I wasn't you know if you if you weren't exercising before there is still value to exercising and to start to exercise um, after a diagnosis of cancer that that still remains true and and the, that evidence has, come out from a variety of different um, sources, um, including the Women's Health Initiative, which is one of the largest um, you know, uh, studies of women in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a great segue for us, right? For PM&R physicians, cancer rehab is a field that's been on the come up. We're seeing a lot more fellowships open up, and especially because of our role when it comes to exercise, physical therapy, um, with that cancer diagnosis. but before treatment, right? And we term that prehab. Do you mind just taking us through a little bit about the definition? So prehab and then exercise during treatment and then post-treatment and what patients should really be focusing on um, in each of those phases? Sure. So um, so prehabilitation, um, the, the field of prehabilitation was really um, kind of founded in, by a, a particular group at McGill in, in Canada. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the trials that are um, most cited and I think are the most rigorous um, include an exercise component, a nutrition component and a uh, stress management component. Um, and um, what we do see in trial after trial after trial is that patients who are willing to undertake an exercise program um, and to eat a particularly healthy diet and deal with their stress 
um, are less likely to be in the hospital for as long. Um, they uh, recover from their surgeries more quickly. Um, and, you know, this is not just true in cancer, right? So um, there are, are ERAS programs, um, as you all are, I'm sure, aware, um, uh, early recovery after surgery programs, um, you know, for a variety of different indications. Um, and so it's, it's not rocket science then to say, oh, this would work for cancer patients as well. Um, and so um, what we, what we uh, recommend is that people um, push as, as hard as they are capable of pushing prior to when they have that surgery. And surgery is often the first thing that happens with cancer. Um, because um, they're not going to be able to push as hard when they're in recovery from surgery or while they're going through any adjuvant treatments they may have to undergo. And so um, that is the time to be as, you know, as rigorous, as vigorous with exercise as you can be, because um, you really can make a substantive difference in your uh, fitness levels and in a number of blood parameters that will um, actually shift the likelihood of being in the hospital for longer um, just by being more physically active for a couple of weeks um, prior to going in for surgery. So, so there's the prehab. And, you know, I lay out a plan, a three-week prehab plan um, in, in my book. Um, and it's intentionally rigorous. You know, it's intentionally, okay, this is not, you know, taking a walk. This is work, you know. Um, and, uh, and then there's recovery from surgery. Um, and obviously, uh, there needs to be some rest and recovery from surgery. Um, but um, there is a misunderstanding, I think, on the part of many patients that recovery from surgery means um, lying still. And that is actually not a good idea. Um, in fact, they should be um, up and you know, wandering hallways with their IV pole um, as soon as they possibly can. Um, that that will be good for gut health. That will be good for avoiding infections. It will be good for avoiding pneumonia. Um, you know, we'll get them out of the hospital sooner, um, you know, and it will mean that they will lose less physical function as a result of the surgery, which is a, a common problem with surgeries. Um, and then once they're done with the acute phase of recovery, then uh, there's a matter of, of um, you know, now regaining whatever you lost as a result of the surgery. Um, the complication here, of course, is that that's, this is usually just about when the adjuvant treatments would start. And so um, if you're going into adjuvant treatment, then you go into a phase of, um, of, of um, cyclic um, exercise uh, uh, dosing, meaning that, you know, generally speaking, uh, cytotoxic chemotherapies or immune therapies would be offered on a cyclic basis. So you would have uh, your chemotherapy day one, and then you would have it again on day 14 or day 15 or day 21, um, sometimes day eight, you know, sometimes they're a week apart. And um, the uh, uh, symptoms are usually worse within um, several days after uh, when the chemotherapy is, is delivered. And so if you have a 21 day cycle, then you have the, you know, you have your, your dose of chemotherapy and then you're okay for a few days and then you're really not okay. You have what we call bad days. Um, and then you can, you know, come back to your exercise and get back to the exercise. The amount of exercise that is recommended during that adjuvant care is less than what is recommended when we're recovering from adjuvant care or in the prehabilitation phase because in acknowledgement of the fact that there are bad days and acknowledgement of the fact that the goal 
is to be maintaining function. The goal is quality of life and helping with anxiety and depression. It's not about recovery from surgery. It's about trying to get through the treatment, right? Trying to support you through the treatment. So the amount of exercise recommended is um, three times a week of uh, 30 minutes each time of aerobic activity and twice weekly strength training. Once you're done with the adjuvant treatment, then we're in the survivorship phase and we're trying to increase capacity um, uh, now that we're done with the bad days, now that we're done with and we're recovering from the cytotoxic uh, treatments or from radiation treatment. Um, and at that point, then we put the pedal to the metal and we try to get back to 150 to 300 minutes a week of aerobic activity and twice weekly strength training because now what you're training for is your life. Now you're training in order to be in the best possible condition. So can I guarantee that exercise is going to prevent a recurrence from occurring? No, I would tell you that uh, there is uh, extraordinarily strong evidence uh, in the epidemiologic literature that exercise reduces recurrence of uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colon cancer on the order of about 30%, which is pretty big. Um, that's a pretty big effect. So, um, so it feels to me like I certainly would want to be taking advantage of that um, if I was a survivor myself. So, uh, so, you know, so we try to try to get into the best shape of as, as possible. The other, other reason for that is that if you do unfortunately end up with a recurrence, you are in outstanding condition to withstand a second round of treatment if you have adhered to the guidelines for uh, exercise for cancer survivors. So with respect to the exercise prescription during that acute phase or during the, the cyclic phase when they're actively on chemo or radiation, you said three times a week, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, two times a week of 30 minutes of strength training. Is that, did I hear that correctly or? Actually, the strength training, we don't give it time. We ask that you do, you know, five to eight exercises and hopefully do them once or twice. So, okay. um, primarily you know, compound I'm... movements. Right. Multiple yes. muscles. Yes, okay. exactly. Exactly. So I think, I mean, you've done a wonderful job highlighting the importance of it. You know, I think probably there are still some people out there who either have cancer or maybe some of the older folks. I know people in my parents' generation, maybe even some of my colleagues who will have this idea that, you know, we have a finite amount of resources in the body, right? And mm -hmm. when you're going through these phases, I think the, the the conventional thought is that, hey, listen, I need to save my energy so my mm -hmm. body can fight the cancer, right? Rather than invest that energy and burn it and use it for exercise. And this is something I hear time and time again. I hear from patients. I hear from family members. Mm -hmm. Can you spend a couple of minutes talking about how it doesn't quite work that way and actually exercise yeah. helps energize you and yeah. provides more of that resilience and, and uh, robustness? Yeah, it, it's it's very frustrating because um, you know I do I do have sort of this this sort of thought that when people hear me talk about this, they must say what part of I'm tired do you not understand? You know, um, so, um, and, and I do understand and it really is the point. And so, so the advice that I like to give is, is very um, folksy and that is, okay, so um, I want you to sit and be as sedentary as you want to be um, uh, for a, a period of time or a day. Okay. And I want you to, you know, notice how you feel. And then I want you to the next day or next period of time, I want you to get up and just move around for 10 minutes. 
just get up and move around. And at the end of that getting up and moving around, I want you to tell me if you feel better or you feel worse, or you feel the same. And what we find over and over and over again is that people feel better once they've done some movement. The human body is meant to be in motion. We are meant to be in motion until the, the second before we die. We are meant to be in motion when we're in the ICU. We need to move those bodies. You know, we are meant to be in motion and the, the, the motion is, a, a, is natural for the body. And um, even when we are going through something difficult now, that said, I am currently experiencing cancer again. A very, very dear friend is going through breast cancer and just finished her chemotherapy. And I can tell you that there were, during her chemotherapy, there were about five days per each three week cycle when there was just no getting up. So I understand that there are bad days, that there are days when, you know, getting off the couch is simply not an option. The problem is when we make the assumption that getting off the couch is simply not an option for the entirety of, of a six month phase of, of treatment. And I will guarantee that you're going to feel a whole lot worse at the end of that treatment. If you do nothing, than if you at least start doing some walking, at least doing a little bit of walking and enough to just get the blood pumping enough to just you know, shift the, 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 you know, how, how things are circulating in the body. Yeah. How do let's, so let's, let's talk about motivation. I know you touched on this in your book as well. Yeah. Um, with loved ones, it can especially be tough, right? They have this yeah. conversation of, well, you should understand, like, you know, me and like you mentioned, you got called some names, right? When you're trying to motivate your wife, but yeah. <laughs> what did, what did you do with Sarah? How did you end up getting her motivated? Cause by the end, I know in the book, she, she talks about how, um, it was a great thing for her to be exercising. Right. And it, it became yeah. almost a passion for her boxing and things. So what were the tactics mm -hmm. that you used to really change, um, the mindset? Yeah, it's not just, just with Sarah. This is something that I use pretty universally. Um, and that is, um, when, when whatever I'm asking for is too much, I, um, make it smaller. And if that's still too much, I make it smaller. And if we get to, I'm going to ask you to stand up and march in place for a minute, then that's what I'm doing. And when they're successful with doing that three times a day, then we ask them to do it 10 times a day. Hmm. And then they're, and then they're moving 10 minutes a day, you know? Yep. So. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, I think there's, there's two answers though, um, to your question. One is, you know, how do you motivate? And I think that breeding success, success breeds success. So, you know, finding the small unit that they will do. Um, but then there's another thing and that is, um, and I think I talk about this in the book that, you know, the good news is that your body doesn't actually care if you're motivated. Mm -hmm. Um, it actually benefits from the exercise, whether or not you're motivated to do it and, Motivation is kind of overrated. People who exercise are not necessarily more motivated to exercise. They just simply make the choice to do it. Right. Yeah. You know, so, um, so I, I think, I think, um, you know, I'm not motivated and I kind of want to say, and I don't like the color orange. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't make any difference. 
right? How about when it comes to weightlifting versus cardio, right? You mentioned doing both and both obviously have their benefits, right? Cardio from the heart perspective, especially with the uh, chemotoxicity and then weightlifting, you know, with complications like lymphedema, um, which can really, you know, help reduce that. Weightlifting is really a new concept for a lot of patients. What, how do you recommend from an exercise prescription standpoint that people get started with that? Yeah, this is tough because um, access becomes a real issue here. There's a real disparity with regard to the ability of a cancer patient to survivor to be able to find um, somebody with a PM&R specialty in oncology, uh, somebody with a, an exercise oncology certificate of some kind or another. Um, you know, outside of urban places, um, you know, we actually have mapped exercise oncology in the United States and we know that if you are um, minority, uh, racial minority, if you are um, uh, lower socioeconomic status, if you are more rural, then you are less likely to have access to this kind of expertise. So, um, so in terms of access, um, the challenge is that um, in order for people to do uh, weight training and to really understand um, how how to do weight training, they need to be shown how, um, particularly individuals who are older, which is most of cancer patients, right? Um, and, you know, particularly older women, um, the pre-Title IX gals, you know, who are over 60 and, and you know, didn't grow up with the same access to exercise um, and the same societal expectations about exercise, we need to teach them how to do this. And so, um, so the, you know, the low-hanging fruit to get people moving is, is walking, right? Um, so, you know, so if I am, you know, in a very low resource situation and somebody asks me, what should I be doing? And I have two seconds to tell them what to do. I tell them to walk. But if I know that what they need is weight training, um, you know, there are online programs. Um, there are uh, programs that offer online virtual training. Um, I, I personally think that um, there is a real opportunity with regard to, um, there are, you know, large companies like Medbridge, um, that have home exercise program options, um, that, uh, you know, physical therapists could be, um, training people how to do these programs and then asking them to do it at home. Um, so that's, that's among the answers, um, that I think are possible, but I think, I do think that, um, getting people to do weight training is, is an extra, extra hurdle. You mentioned a certification in oncology, exercise oncology. Where can people go find people? Um, you know, are there resources, ACSM website? Where, mm -hmm. where can people find folks with that certification so that they right. know that these people are going to be like experienced with their specific complications, their unique um, just background experience where they're coming from? Right. So um, two answers. One is um, that the... Um, the Moving Through Cancer initiative that I started through the American College of Sports Medicine has a website. If you Google Moving Through Cancer ACSM, um, you'll find it very quickly. Um, and there is a directory of exercise oncology programs across the United States. There's over 2,000 programs in the directory. They've all been vetted so that we know that somebody who is, is teaching people within that program has some specialty training. Um, whether it be from the YMCA or from ACSM or from other sources um, to work with uh, people living with and beyond cancer. 
Um, the second answer is that um, the American College of Sports Medicine had a, um, a cancer exercise trainer certification that they started back in 2008. Um, and, um, you know, when we built that, um, you know, it was a very different time. It was a very different era. And um, we've now decided to update that. And we've invited um, the international uh, leading expert in training people to work with people living with beyond cancer for, for exercise. Her name is Anna Campbell. Um, she has a program called Can Rehab. Um, and um, she's been doing this program internationally all over the place. And we connected her with ACSM and the American, American Cancer Society. And so the entirety of the ACSM credentialing for exercise oncology is, has been completely revamped and will be rolled out um, very soon um, so that anybody who is a physician, nurse, physical therapist, exercise physiologist, fitness trainer can take the CAN Rehab course and become credentialed by ACSM in order to work with um, exercise with people living with and beyond cancer. It's fantastic news. All right. Well, I think it'd be a good to transition now talking about exercise with the support team, right? Especially with oncologists. In the beginning of this episode, you talked about how, you know, through your loved one's diagnosis, it was almost an aha moment. You know, this is the work you do. And it was like, wait, why haven't I really thought about this? And likewise, you know, for me, at least with my loved ones, it was kind of the same thing. It was just something that I knew about, <laughs> studied, did research on, but still never really had the opportunity to talk about it because it never came natural. I know it's the same as, it is in our healthcare system, right? When you go to an oncology appointment, when you talk about what's coming next or even uh, post-diagnosis or post-treatment, how can one talk about exercise with their oncologist um, when there's so many other things to talk about as well? Right, so um, uh, I'm delighted to say that this Moving Through Cancer uh, ACSM website um, has a triage tool baked into it called Exceeds. Um, and if you do the triage questionnaire, it then can print out the results or send you the results via email so that you can take it to your doctor to start a conversation so that your doctor can know how you answered the questions on the triage survey and so that they know whether it's appropriate to send the patient to rehabilitation or to send them to a group exercise program or for them to exercise on their own. Um, so the triage tool is intended to help with those exact conversations. Um, I think there are examples around the country of um, cancer centers that are doing a good job of um, making this connection, um, uh, but they are extremely few and far between. Um, at Hillman Cancer Center at, at Pitt, we have a program um, that um, starts with this triage tool uh, with every patient that's receiving um, infusion therapy um, and once the person is done with the triage tool, we then um, help guide them towards appropriate exercise programming, sometimes in the community, sometimes one-on-one -on -one with a physical therapist, sometimes being sent to a cancer rehabilitation program. Um, and you know, and we're, we're finding that patients really, really like the triage tool. We find that if we do the triage tool, then patients know why they're being sent where they're being sent. If I walk up to somebody and say, hey, I think you should exercise, it would be really good for your symptoms. I don't even know what symptoms they have, right? If I walk up to them instead and I say, hey, take this survey, we might be able to help you with some things. They take the survey and I come back and I say, 
based on your answers and what you said about your symptoms, I think that you might really benefit from this kind of exercise program that would help you with these things that you said you had a problem with. You see the difference? So I think that we need to do a much better job with that triage and referral piece. Um, and I think that there are very few cases that are doing that particularly well. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of going through some of this stuff right now. And I love that they actually have a prescription pad for clinicians to be able to use that and prescribe exercise. I mean, this reminds me yep. something Dr. Beth Frades was talking about, just the whole, um, you know, the the fit uh, to be able to prescription and, and how that yep. simplifies it for providers to be able to do that. And some really amazing resources for patients and handouts and whatnot. So we're going to be sure to to link this in the in the show notes for sure. Well, Dr. Smith, I, um, I've actually also been thinking about, I mean, you're such an enthusiast for exercise. I, I'm actually curious, what's your exercise regimen like? Oh, so, um, so I actually need your services right now. Um, I have arthritis in my left foot, um, secondary to a bunion, and I need a, a, um, a steroid injection <laughs> in my foot. Um, so I have been a runner, um, but right now that is just not in the cards. So I own a Peloton bike and I'm on my Peloton about five times a week. Um, I'm pretty, pretty religious about it. Um, and then I have weights. And so I do weights, um, twice a week on my own. Um, so, um, so that's, you know, I'm, I just am busy, you know, so I don't get out to do exercise out in the, sure. you know, the community, but. Um, I'm, I'm pretty religious about, uh, getting my exercise in it's, it's my sanity. <laughs> well, I love that. And I think the, the big takeaway for listeners is, I mean, despite having an injury right in your toe, you're finding other ways to move around that injury, right? I think yep. often people have something they're like, well, you know, I can't do X, Y, and Z and they keep focusing on what they can't do. And then, you know, even we've talked about this with Dan Pope and multiple people in the past is like, okay, if you have a cast in your left leg, well, what about your right leg? You can continue yes. training that, right? You know, this from exercise science, I mean, you know, motor learning 101, the crossover effect, right? You're going to heal faster if you train the opposite extremity. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, yeah, I mean, when, when we get offline, I can, I mean, I'm pretty far from you right now, but I can definitely make some recommendation to UPMC, a couple people who'll be able to take care of you there. Well, that would be fantastic. <laughs> For sure. I, you know, I, I realized actually Darsh was talking about, you know, we, we actually have spent some, some time recently talking about artificial intelligence, uh, with Joe Bhakti and also talking about genomics. You know, one thing that's been really exciting, a lot of different people talking about genomics-based medicine and screening and even earlier screening with the power mm -hmm. of AI. Do you have any thoughts on that? I know it's a bit outside of the scope of this discussion, but sure, with your pulse on cancer and everything related and how long you've been in the field, do you have any thoughts on, on that and, and how it can help revolutionize what we do in terms of exercise and prevention in the future and intervene earlier? Yep. So, uh, so a couple of things. I actually did an AI project um, that was funded by American Institute for Cancer Research um, called Nurse Amy. And um, so I think that AI actually is, um, you know, we were talking earlier about um, the access issues for exercise oncology. And I think that technology could be one of the ways that we address those access issues. Um, but there's also the access issue for people who are not comfortable with technology. And so they're not, you know, um, used to keyboards or touch screens. Um, and I think that um, conversational agents, chatbots can be quite helpful with those populations. So something like, you know, um, uh, Amazon Alexa or, um, you know, the variety of different, um, you know, smart speakers and whatnot that um, could be used. 
Um, and, you know, there is actually a, a you know, a nascent um, scientific literature to show that you can develop a therapeutic alliance with an AI, with a chatbot um, uh, for a variety. They've been used a lot for, uh, for mental health, um, but um, we actually found that metastatic breast cancer patients really liked working with the um, Amazon Alexa Echo Show, which is the version that has the screen. Um, and that really um, allowed us to track their symptoms and offer them exercise interventions and nutrition counseling um, and, you know, soothing music and meditation and a variety of things in response to the symptoms that they themselves reported. Um, I think personally that AI is a great possibility for the fact that, you know, the, the, the specialty that you two have, I, you know, there are not nearly enough of you and um, there are not nearly enough of, of cancer rehabilitation physical therapists or uh, exercise oncology professionals. There just aren't. So how do we address that? And to me, I think getting back to the triage and referral, if we could invent an AI-based tool that would allow people to answer questions that would triage them so that we know, aha, this person really can do it on their own and then offer them a virtual exercise program and they're fine. And that's going to be some portion of people. And then there's going to be some people who have some relatively straightforward problems that you probably could still help virtually. And then it triages the people to say, aha, these are the people that really need to go see a PM&R doc with specialty oncology. So it's, it's, you know, it would be a way of, of organizing and sh sorting and shifting patients, um, give everybody the AI, give everybody the access to the AI, give everybody the basic program that tells them that they should be moving, eating well, drinking less, stopping smoking, all of those things, right? And then, um, you know, when you find somebody who, who like, has a seven out of 10 on, you know, some symptom that, you know, would really be helped with a steroid injection or whatever, um, then, then, aha, you know, we'd like, you know, the AI would then say, it would be great if you would please call, you know, Dr. Smith and, you know, go see Dr. Smith at the, on the corner of, you know, Broadway and, and whatever, you know. Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me, like just where the future's heading and probably how much closer we are to making this all a reality. Um, just especially with deep learning and how quickly AI can, you know, learn and how it's going to affect our lives. So definitely um, a lot of bright spots to look for when it comes to medicine and medicine 3.0. Uh, well, Dr. Schmitz, yeah. where, what are you currently researching right now? And what else are you excited for um, in the development of exercise cancer rehab? Okay. So, oh, Good, good question. Um, so um, I am currently um, extremely well-funded. Um, so I have a trial called PA Moves, which is a primary prevention trial in um, rural Pennsylvania. So we are recruiting 800 primary care patients who are overweight or obese and or diabetic. And we are randomizing them to receive a physical activity intervention versus not. We're simply trying to improve physical activity levels in rural primary care patients, given the fact that we know that rural individuals are more likely to develop cancer, rural patients are less likely to be physically active, and physical activity is associated with reduced about 10, 10 to 20% reduction of cancer risk for many common cancers. 
Um, so that's PA moves. That's happening. Um, we are, you know, in the slow and arduous, arduous process of recruiting um, for that. We've recruited about 50 patients so far. Um, and um, I have a, a new version. I mentioned the, um, the, uh, the AI project I did. I've translated that into a tablet-based intervention now um, for rural advanced cancer patients. So Nurse Amy is a study that we're doing in uh, rural Pennsylvania for the most part. Um, and we've recruited 109 uh, of our 344 patients. Um, they're receiving a tablet-based supportive care uh, program or supportive care materials in writing. Um, and uh, we're looking at whether or not we can improve symptoms and, um, and quality of life um, uh, in these advanced cancer patients. So, um, and obviously the, the tablet includes a lot of advice about walking and a lot of advice about exercise. So um, it was a sneaky way for me to get exercise into the hands of these advanced cancer patients. And then um, I mentioned as well the um, trial that we're doing with older breast cancer patients um, called Thrive 65. And this is with colleagues from Dana-Farber and Case Western Reserve. And we're recruiting 270 older breast cancer patients um, and randomizing them into a weight training and protein supplementation intervention versus supportive care. And we're looking at whether or not we can improve chemotherapy tolerance and chemotoxicities. Um, so. Um, so that one is, is ongoing and, you know, the recruitment for that one is quite the slog. Um, and, uh, and then I have an ongoing quality improvement project that I mentioned earlier, um, uh, that is a triage and referral project. And we have, um, um, uh, met close to 500 patients at this point. Um, and we're learning a lot about the process of if we do the triage and referral process and refer people to exercise, do they go? Um, and, you know, do they, do they like this process? Is it a process that they find acceptable? And it's exceedingly popular and we are expanding the program to additional locations within Hillman Cancer Center um, in September. Um, so I also lead an international um, uh, initiative um, called Moving Through Cancer um, through the American College of Sports Medicine. And um, the agenda for Moving Through Cancer is um, nothing short of making exercise standard of care in oncology by 2029. And um, our agenda items towards that goal include policy work. We're in the process of writing an application for a national coverage determination from uh, CMS through Medicare. Um, and uh, so we have you know, policy reviews that we do and a number of policy conversations. We're interested in stakeholder awareness. We've developed a booklet um, to try to make it easier for clinicians such as yourself to hand something to a patient to say, this is why you should be exercising. Um, uh, we are developing the workforce. Um, some of that work has to do with the CAN rehab work that I talked about before. We're in the middle of writing a textbook um, uh, called Essentials of Exercise Oncology that will come out in 2024. Um, we're interested in developing programs um, and um, that work at this point um, really centers around mapping the programming that currently exists and recognizing the disparities in the programming that exists. Um, and, um, I, and I think, you know, there's, there's um, real interest in um, uh, doing research together as a team as well. Um, and the research that's under development right now is a 
is a Medicare pilot um, in order to show that exercise does change healthcare utilization. Um, and that one's very, uh, very exciting. I'm, I'm super duper excited about that one. So I have a few things cooking. Just, just, <laughs> just a few. I know your book's called Moving Through Cancer, but Dr. Schmitz, you, you, you really don't stop moving. <laughs> You got a lot going on. Wow. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, why don't yeah. yeah? Why don't you tell our listeners which social medias you're active on and where they can go and find the work you do, as well as just some of the things that you post? Sure, absolutely. So, um, I, are we calling it Twitter anymore or X? I don't know. Ooh, I don't know. That's yeah, a good debate. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm there and um, I'm there a lot um, and I am fit after cancer on uh, on twitter um and uh i am fitness after cancer on instagram um and uh so you'll find me in both of those places um but um you know i i am regularly uh you know in front of the media and um so if you google for my name you'll you'll find um places where i've been quoted i was just quoted in the washington post and in the san francisco chronicle and you know so um I talk to media a fair fair amount, so I'm I'm not I'm not hiding. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty pretty easy to find, um, and you know you can you can find a variety of different emails to find me um, by googling me. Awesome. Well, Dr. Schmitz, I want to thank you so much for being generous with your time and educating us, and more importantly, doing the work that you do. I mean, I think this is absolutely incredible what you've been doing for the last 10, 20 years, and what you're probably going to continue to do for the next decade or two or however long you plan on doing this for. Um, I mean, this is clearly very, very important. And, you know, of course, again, I want to highlight my bias and the importance of exercise, but as you've pointed out, like the evidence speaks for itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, cancer sucks in every yeah. which way. And yeah, there is some aspect of the hope and the belief and the things that we talk about and exercise is usually a positive, right. And from the hormones and all the other things that we talk about. One of the things that we do in physiatry is that I think the two buzzwords that we use in physiatry is function and quality of life, right? Quality mm -hmm. of life is more than one a word. And in every facet of almost every facet of quality of life, exercise helps improve that. And mm -hmm. there are very few things that, you know, cancer doesn't affect in a negative manner. So if we could combat that and, and if for you to, to do all the work that you're doing to produce good evidence and uh, the initiatives that you're doing, uh, we want to thank you so much. Our, our last question that we'd like to ask our listeners is, you know, about adding the health back to healthcare. I'd like to challenge you to come up with an answer that actually doesn't have to do with exercise and oncology, just because we've, and I'm curious what, what else you, you'll come up with um, regarding adding the health back to healthcare. Mental health. I would say that if there is a way for us to, um, allow uh, the, the healthcare professional to have appropriate training and readiness to meet people where they are in terms of their mental health. Um, and uh, I think, I think, you know, mental health is, is helped by exercise. Um, but, uh, but I think that uh, we have a crisis in this country with uh, mental health and, you know, in particular in our youth. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that if we can um, find ways that are non-pharmacologic um, to start to address mental health um, in healthcare, um, and that every every encounter um, that the mental health and that the and mental and emotional well-being 
of the patient is as important as their physical well-being. Um, I think that that would um, revolutionize healthcare. Love it. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Schmidt. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Thank Schmidt. you for the opportunity, guys. Yep. This was so fun. Thank you. You got it. All right. Thank you. And keep moving, everyone. I want to thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. You know, cancer is something that 99.9% of people who are living can relate to either personally by being diagnosed or knowing someone who's been diagnosed. And it's a terrifying feeling knowing a loved one can be suffering from this. And by the lifestyle interventions that we so often talk about on this show, I'm really hoping that you can share this episode with those that you know, can really just use it as a helping hand. I mean, the tips and tricks that Dr. Schmitz talks about when it comes to motivating loved ones, motivating patients, I think are very unique, but also can really make a big impact um, as the medical field is trying to figure out a way to cure this terrible disease. We can still use things to our advantage like exercise and better sleep and better diet. And so again, I, I, I beg you all to please share this to somebody that you know who has been affected by cancer or who is currently battling uh, in their current state. As always, our disclaimer, everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. And as, all, as always, thank you to our team, Ethan Jew and Harita Yepuri for the production of this podcast. For all the listeners out there, if you have any questions, if you have any topics, if you have reviews, if you want to let us know anything, you can email us at medredefined at gmail.com or visit our website at www.medicineredefined.com. Leave a review. Let us know what you think. and We'll be more than happy to entertain your requests. All right. Have a great week. <laughs>